Happy Monday. How's it going? Happy Monday. Yeah, it's going great. <laughs> no better way to start it off. TGIM. Yeah. So, <laughs> cool. Uh, so today on the Monday Morning Data Chat, we have uh, Armand and Satish. Uh, for people who don't know who you are, do you want to give a quick intro, uh, maybe starting with Armand? Yeah, definitely. I'm the co-founder and CEO at Coalesce. And here's my uh, co-founder here as well. Hey, guys. Uh, I'm Satish Janti. I'm uh, the other co-founder um, here um, you know, to talk about data. Cool. That's awesome. Yeah, welcome to the show. Been looking forward to having you guys. So uh, walk us through real quick. I mean, what what exactly is Coalesce? Yeah, Coalesce. Coalesce, the, the problem that we're focused on solving is largely in where we saw was the biggest bottleneck in analytics today, which where we've seen automation really impact pretty much every sector of analytics. If you think of getting access to data from sources, things like Fiverr have made it so easy to point and click. Same thing has happened on the front end tools with things like Tableau for BI or Data Robot for data science. We're applying that same philosophy to actually transforming that data, taking it from its raw format to the point where it's actually consumable for those upstream drive insight out of data type tools. That's really interesting. I mean, what are, what are some of the shortcomings that you're seeing in, in the transformation space right now? There's quite a bit. I would say that, you know, one thing that we're seeing is an ex exponential growth in data and data demands. I think that pretty much every company is looking for data people. They're looking for data engineers or data warehouse resources. And there's such a large shortage in the market and it almost begs us to wonder why is that, you know, why are we not able to keep up with the demands from the business and actually be able to transform data in a way that's as efficient as some of these other parts of analytics. And so it, it you know, from a high level, I would say that that's a really clear indicator that there's efficiency gains and productivity gains that need to be made. I think to take it a little bit more granular, you know, it, it depends on things like data architecture or applying standards and practices to actually transforming data or proper documentation and lineage. Like there's so many factors that come out of why it takes so long, why it's such a big bottleneck in the analytics landscape. Yeah, it's, it's interesting watching the cloud, um, I'll call it the cloud MPP space. You had Redshift come out, it was just this like huge sea change, like suddenly you didn't have to sign a multi-million dollar contract to have one of these systems. Then Snowflake, BigQuery, but it turned out that like just managing the human labor of managing transformations was still a huge headache. And that problem was not solved by these new tools. Like they were kind of miraculous, but still someone had to write the SQL, someone had to manage lineage. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, you saw it. The, I mean, with the emergence of these incredibly powerful platforms like Snowflake, it, it was, it's an insanely good platform, but there are so many other aspects of the analytics landscape that really required their customers to go find point solutions for. And so it turned yeah. into this best of breed, broad approach where you've got different tools for each section. Whereas historically, you know, we saw this as well happen, but then there's a consolidation event where companies have those point solutions all in-house, like an Oracle or an SAP. So you don't need to go anywhere else. And ultimately, it's really great for the market because it drives innovation in each sector. And that's what we're really excited about doing for the data transformation space specifically, especially because we felt that that was the area that has been the most time intensive, has been the most expensive, has led to the highest failure rates when you think about doing any type of data project. Yeah. Speaking of the data platforms, uh, 
you know, these are incredible compute platforms they have. And Armand and I, we, we were in a discussion at one point uh, showing our, uh, with one of the VCs and, um, you know, Snowflake came up and he said, Snowflake has solved the data warehousing problem. So why are you guys, what are you guys building here? So, so there's a misunderstanding that the, the, the platform itself would, uh, although it provides you the compute, but it not necessarily give you, you know, any, uh, you know, any, any uh, productivity in building the actual you know, data analytics, the artifacts, the tables, the, the logic that you need. To yeah, that's all the logic, right? I mean, the logic's pretty vast. I mean, I'm, I'm looking around. I got books on data modeling. This is, you know, the classic. Yeah. One of them, for sure. Yeah. Um, and it's also like 400 something pages long. So you can, uh, obviously, there's a lot of examples in the book. The whole point is the tools are one thing, uh, but then the practice of, of transformations is another, you know, and, um, I think Bill Emmons fond of saying, you know, that's the, the transformations where you start getting the value out of your data yet too, right? And so it is the hardest part, but I'd say it's the most valuable part. So imagine a world without transformations, for example. What, what do you think happens? <laughs> I think we've seen it kind of happen, right? There's, mm. been, there's been scenarios where people just land the data in a platform and then they, they run off and try to drive analytics off it, do business intelligence, use BI dashboards, and then it leads to a huge lack of governance and a bunch of other problems where you've got one question that leads to five different answers and people off in silos. I mean, a lot of this still prevails today, to be honest, but, but it just leads to that, leads to that problem more and more. If there isn't proper transformations applied, rules applied to that data. Yeah. Yeah. I think we've typically seen two main scenarios. So one is that a company is migrating from an existing solution is that they have a whole ETL team, right? They have these like, you know, highly trained practitioners who can build out complex scripts and so they just kind of lift and shift what they have to the new platform. The other possibility is that you have these small teams where suddenly it's like, hey, I can, I'm a startup, but I can still use Snowflake or I can still use BigQuery or whatever. Um, but then, like you're saying, Armand, they, they go in and they don't know what they're doing with transformations. They have the tool, but they're not, they're not seeing the value or they're having to like rebuild transformations for every use case because there's no generalization. There's no notion of normalization, anything like this. Yeah. And as Kent says here, uh, what's up, Kent? <laughs> yes. <laughs> data swamp is a result. So, <laughs> um, yeah. Maybe we'll just start a data swamp as a, a service company or something. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, uh, this is, this, it's, it happens a ton. Swamps galore. So, yeah, I agree with you, Matt. I, I would say that we've seen so many organizations that you know, start off with a small analytics practice, don't really think about data architecture or proper data model prior to building. They just want to get analytics done quickly. And then as that business grows and grows, and as the data grows and the demands grow, they realize a year or two years or three years down the road that they need to basically re-architect what they've built. And that whole process is super painful. It's very expensive. It's very difficult uh, to re-engineer uh, for a lot of the reasons that, that you discussed as well. That's real interesting. Actually, uh, George Furikin has a question. Good morning, George. Um, and I kind of asked him also, is this uh, apply for analytics or ML? But his question is what types of... Um, Data transformation, do you feel, will come more in demand? Um, uh, data smoothing, uh, discretization, normalization, et cetera. So it's an interesting question. Yeah, I mean, I personally think it's it's a combination of those things, right? I mean, data, it depends on how you want to use that data to solve a business problem. 
it, it really depends how the organization is trying to do that, get value out of that data. Um, and, and every organization is different. Every data set is different. Um, the normalization part is important because that's how you get some understanding of the data, how the quality of the data goes up once you understand and you kind of standardize it. Uh, that helps, you know, and then the data smoothing and the data discretization is depends on the use case. So if you have data science use cases, maybe you have to smoothen the data to, or you have to do certain things to it to prepare it. So I, I personally think all of those are pretty important. I don't know if one would be more important than the other. That's my personal take. That's a good question. And I think Matt and I have the opinion that it, it, the answer is it really uh, depends. So I think yeah. it's all the above. Um, yeah, I guess it, it's not like one data modeling technique to rule them all. So it's, you know, exactly. yeah, de unnormalized data, denormalized data is also a thing too. So I think that has, it has a use case in some places. So it just depends. Right, what do you think, Matt? Yeah, that's, I mean, I actually wanted to ask you guys this, like, what's your opinion on the shift to this new generation of data systems? Is there a change in approaches to normalization versus denormalization into data, data modeling? I think what we've seen is that the vendors, if you talk to the vendors, they're like, yeah, denormalize, but they don't tell you what that really means. I, I think full denormalization is kind of meaningless. It's kind of like, you're, you're defining something by what it's not, but not by what it is. Um, and true full denormalization creates a huge mess. On the other hand, uh, even in the kind of more traditional data warehouse era, um, fully normalizing things was kind of a mess as well. So like, where do we land in between those two extremes? Um, do you guys have kind of an opinion on that when you work with customers that the, it's, these are very open-ended questions, but more, more want to start a conversation on this. Steve, what do you think? I'll let you take this one to start. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so it's a great question. And see, I, I, you know, I did a lot of data modeling. That's, you know, that was when I was doing data warehouses, that was the thing, like, you have to focus on the architecture, you have to focus on the data models, get your data model right. Now, I've also seen the extreme of that. That's where the problem is. You know, we always, I, for some reason, the industry always works in extremes for some reason. You know, either you do all modeling or you just stop modeling and do nothing about modeling and then you build the other side. So I think the problem is that, like, if you get the right balance, I think there's value in data modeling. There's value in normalization. And what you need to understand as an experienced architect or an experienced data engineer is you take a look at what you have at hand. What is the problem? that I'm trying to solve. And how important is this data? You know, not all data are equal in an organization. There's critical data, there's data that just lifespan is short. Uh, you just have to use, build something very quickly. So there's all these different kinds of data. So you as a uh, senior architect or engineer need to understand like, do I normalize this data set? Am I using this data as my foundation? Is this the guts of the organization? So if so, then you have to apply extra care to it, which means you need to understand it. You need to draw those relationships. You need to kind of make sure that it's all aligns with the business needs and so on. And then if you're saying, I'm going to use this data over and over, I'm going to apply all that rules and you know prepare it 
and use it as a foundation. Now there's the other extreme is if the, if the, short, if the data is short-lived, it's, it's got like, you know, it be, becomes stale if you don't use it soon, that's different. You don't have to do it. You don't, you know, you can go, you can take shortcuts because your goal is to get the value out of that before it expires. So how do you balance, like, because I think there's a lot of ceremony too with data modeling to a large extent. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, how do you, how do you balance ceremony with practicality? Yeah, um, it, it's a tough one. I mean, you know, it's, it's all about focus on the outcome. You know, people lose that. They don't focus on the outcome, the value that you get. They're focused on mostly on the perfecting the model itself. You know, that's where the problem is. It's, it's a balance, right? I mean, I feel like we, we come across this all the time dealing with customers and prospects. And like Satish said, I'm always fascinated by seeing how market trends really do feel like a pendulum swinging all the way to one side of an extreme and then all the way back to another side of an extreme. And I think that as the market develops, as people recognize that, hey, if we go way too deep on the modeling side of the house, there's going to be a little bit of analysis paralysis. If we go way too deep on just build stuff, build things and, and try to get value out of it as quickly as possible, we're probably going to have to re-engineer this down the road. And so as people feel that pain, as people, as people get burned, I feel like naturally there's going to be a happy medium, or at least I like to think there'll be some moderation applied where there's a nice ratio of the team that's focused on maybe modeling plus building, depending on the scale of the project and the market just continues to evolve in a positive direction. But it does feel like two steps forward, one step backwards, two steps forward, one step backwards. Where do you think we are on the pendulum right now? <laughs> I, I would like to think that right now we're, we're coming back from one side of the extremes where we've, we've seen as the market growth hit with Snowflake and it gave access to people to do data that historically didn't have access to do it uh, and really didn't apply some of the best practices for data modeling and architecture. So we're coming back down to some type of moderation on where people have gone through the process of building a data warehouse or data project over the course of a couple of years and realizing now, oh, data architecture does matter. Oh, like that's why you model data. Yeah. And so we're, we're starting to feel that type of experience, especially for some of the early adopters with these cloud platforms, where they're now recognizing that. You, you've seen that, I, I've seen uh, whispers of that, you know, even on social media, some of these thought leaders have been posting where they're now thinking about ER diagrams or doing modeling. Whereas if you talked to them about that two years ago, they would have laughed in your face. Like, why the hell do we need one of those? Uh, and so I like, I like to see those types of things as, as some triggers and anecdotes where we are going to a lot closer towards moderation, but we still got a ways to go. I'd say a little bit of ways to go. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think part of what we need here is maybe some notions of normalization that go beyond, you know, the, the sacrosanct COD model of normalization, to be quite frank. Mm -hmm. um, I think part of the reason like that first normal form doesn't allow any nesting is that relational databases back in the day didn't really handle that very well. And modern databases, like they love nesting. And so it's like, well, maybe we should just kind of think about where it makes sense to do nesting and where it doesn't make sense. And I, I think you almost need a new set of common sense principles to think about what kind of data model makes sense and sort of store it art over on the normalization from a new perspective. So anyway, I'm sure that's going to raise some hackles too. <laughs> 
Yeah, so that's Matt. You can uh, that's honest, right. You address their direct, direct your fire <laughs> tomatoes at him. Um, so, yeah. No, but we we we're talking a lot uh, a lot about this though, Matt. I think there yeah. is. Um, it's it's weird. There haven't really been any like new modeling techniques in the last yeah. what twenty maybe thirty years. I mean, right. I'd love to know what those are if we've seen them, but I haven't seen them. So, you know, I, mean, I think the latest, uh, the big one, was, was the last big one was I think was Data Vault. Right? Yeah, that, that was you know that's cool. You know, what do you guys see out there? Do you see um, is Data Vault uh, implemented quite a bit uh, stateside? Definitely feels like a growing a growing market for sure. I mean, we, we do encounter quite a few different data vault organizations or organizations that aspire to build a enterprise data vault 2.0. Uh, now that could be partially because of our past lives. You know, I think we were we were largely involved with a lot of that growth uh, at a previous organization. Uh, but at the same time, you know, we, we're seeing that just mass adoption for cloud platforms and data warehousing. And I think. Data Vault 2.0 does make a lot of sense for specific industries, specific use cases. Uh, and again, it it's really just comes down to what is the use case at the end of the day. But I, we've also seen, you know, hybrid approaches like raw vaults with, uh, you know, kind of info marts or start schemas on them, kind of skipping over the business vault layer. I don't know. What do you think, Satish, from that whole perspective? Yeah, yeah, de definitely. I mean, we have seen uh, a growth in in this space, uh, especially the data vault, if it applies to the use case, as Armand was pointing yeah. out. You know, if people say, hey, I want full auditability, uh, you know, data vault by design is allowing you to do that. So you have that. So it, it's, again, it depends on the requirement. If compliance is the biggest thing for you, then it's, it's a no-brainer. Uh, if you have um, a lot of sources coming in, it's, you know, um, very large number of data sources coming in and, uh, and the state, the landscape in your organization for data is changing so fast. Uh, how do you keep up with that? You know, data vault is definitely one way to ingest data and organize it in a way that you can query that. So yeah, absolutely. We, we are seeing, um, we're seeing data vault adoption in, um, yeah, Sometimes I also wonder, like some people just do data vault for the sake of it. <laughs> well, t tell me more about that. <laughs> it, it, that, sounds it, like a, that sounds like a lot of work. <laughs> it, it does. It does. So you got to be very careful. You know, why are you doing data vault? You have to like actually question yourself. Like, am I doing data vault, you know, because of this and this reasons and I have went through that process before you decide on that. It does add an additional layer. And learning, like you have to understand how these need to be built. Um, it's also very, very important that you understand the business needs there so that the model is kind of reflecting that. The yeah. Operations. That's very mm. important. Yeah. I mean, I, I see people, it's, a, it's in a sense, it's a really good thing. People aspire to build a data vault 2.0. They, they want to, you know, they want to learn that processes, a cutting edge methodology and model. Um, and so it, it's just, it all, all comes back to the conversation we were having just a second ago, where it, it's important to be thinking about the use case, working with the business, and then of course, having that moderation around modeling versus actually building and focusing on what's going to get the value for the business. You know, why, why are we really here? What are we trying to accomplish with data? Uh, but I, I would say that it's, it, it can be easy to get lost just in, in general in the world of data. 
uh, for some of these kind of business outcome expectations. And if you add a lot of, if you add another layer of complexity uh, with Data Vault 2.0, it's just important to keep that in mind. But we've seen it be incredibly successful at some massively large organizations. And you know, one other use case we've encountered it firsthand is in the in the mergers and acquisitions. Like if a company is mm-hmm. innovative, that has been a huge, huge use case that it makes a lot of sense for. Um, some you know some of the companies we work with have have, have been very acquisitive, and so. Uh, naturally, it, it made a lot of sense to support that. Right, so tell me more about that. Is that so you don't lose, so you can't go to an insert-only strategy or if you're combining multiple businesses for auditing purposes? Like what's the big driver in the M&A space to go with something like Data Vault? Yeah, it's a combination of those things, mm-hmm. Matt. Um, you know, the um, first thing it allows, and if you go into a little bit detail of how a Data Vault model is arranged, you have this primarily like a hub table that holds the business key. Uh, and then you have satellites that hold the context of that business key around that hub. Um, so if you get additional context of a business key from a different uh, organization that you just acquired, that can be just hooked up as a satellite without touching any of the existing tables. And you just load those business keys into the hub and then you have a, an additional satellite. So you're, the ingest-only pattern there will help you a lot because you're not touching anything existing. There's very, uh, it's very contained, the change. So you don't have to do a lot of regression testing or you know, a lot of engineering effort. So it really brings those um, you know, data sources together very quickly, of course. You know, the, the quality and all of the other things, they're still there. Isn't that something like, it doesn't automatically like you know integrate the data. You still have to find out if there's duplicate business keys that mean the same, and all of that work is still there. But there are there are solutions for that as well, like from a modeling standpoint in data work. Um, but to answer your point, it, it does help in all those areas. You know, uh, ingestion, um, reduce engineering effort, re-engineering effort, especially when you have already an existing model things like that. It's pretty resilient. Yeah. I'm switching gears a bit. We're kind of in this, um, I don't know, the spot right now in the uh, data tooling world where your transformation tools are either code-based or um, it's like everything is code or GUI-based, but not a lot in between. Um, and we kind of talked about extremes here. I think these, these yeah. kind of represent two extremes where if you're uh, you know, using certain tools, it's, it's everything's code um, you know, or just drag and drop everything on the other extreme. But but you guys, I think, kind of take a different approach. You want to walk us through that? Because I think it was, um, I guess, a pretty interesting insight that you had. Yeah, definitely. Like you said, we've seen the market evolve in so many different ways where that pendulum has swung to both sides of extremes, both as well in the tooling side of the house. So we've seen technologies that have historically been very GUI-driven and uh, propose some type of efficiency for interacting with that GUI. Uh, and then subsequently people who realize that as soon as they need to go outside of the parameters of that interface, it's very painful. And you're writing custom scripts, whatever language it may be in, you're writing custom scripts and it almost makes you ask, why am I even working within this framework? It's so rigid. And so we've seen people feel very burned by that type of tooling and go all the way to the other side of the extreme, which is this whole everything is code programmatic approach movement where Sure, you don't have that 
GUI, but at least you have the flexibility. You, you feel you have the flexibility to do whatever it is that you'd like. At the end of the day, both sides to go too far on the extreme are wrong. And the reason why is because with the GUI side of the house, that, that for what you gain in efficiency from that ease of use and intuitive nature, you compromise with flexibility. On the flip side, what you gain in flexibility by not using the GUI, you compromise in efficiency. And so when we set out on building Coalesce from the ground up, we were focused on giving you all the flexibility of code, but the efficiency of a GUI, efficiency of that intuitive ease of use nature without, without compromising any of the flexibility of your actual platform, in this case, Snowflake. Um, and so we've seen people do wonderful things with being able to package up uh, what we call nodes, nodes in a graph concept where you can really get all the efficiency of a traditional GUI without sacrificing any of the flexibility that people are used to or that people desire, especially at this day and age where data has become more and more complex. You want to do more interesting things to it. You've got so many nuances and edge cases and being able to provide a platform and technology that's guaranteed to support everything that you'd want to do is where we really saw our focus with that whole moderation concept again, give you the best of both worlds. That's really interesting. I mean, you had some uh, nodes as well. Are those the same as recipes? Cause I remember when you showed me the product, I was like, this is pretty cool. I could do a, uh, could basically do data vault in here. You said like, yeah, everything was there. You could turn it into a satellite hub or link or whatever. That's pretty cool. So, yeah, I mean, we've seen that the nodes concept and, and Satish, it'd be nice to share just from a high level, how that's packaged, but, but basically it's, you're, you're given the ability to effectively code your own GUI, code your own package of uh, what is basically a table. And we've seen people do all types of stuff. We've seen people support Data Vault, like you mentioned, Joe, also do streams and tasks on Snowflake, for example, as a big use case, mm -hmm. and then take it into all different types of scenarios, whether it's pivot tables or deduplication uh, or profiling data, all within the SQL pipeline as you build. Um, and the way we were able to accomplish that, I think is pretty interesting uh, that, that we haven't really seen any other technology do. Satish, you want to dive into that from the whole abstraction of DDL and DML and being able to package those configurations and write them into the interface. Yeah, absolutely. So, so if you have a pattern that you recognize that, hey, this pattern is going to be used in my organization, then uh, this is the best way to package in, in our opinion, uh, because a node is a package that has, you know, the configuration, uh, which is basically what the data engineer can, you know, how they can configure, uh, and the logic that is needed to first create that object on Snowflake, uh, however you want to materialize that. And the third piece is finally the processing logic itself. Like if it is a table, and how am I processing it? Like what kind of principles am I applying while loading the data into this? For example, am I creating a hash key as a surrogate key? Am I creating some system columns to track audit, call, audit values? Uh, am I doing some specific transformations that are needed? Uh, so all of those can be packaged up. Uh, and as an architect, architect, you can create these nodes and then kind of have everybody else on the team just to use it to build their pipelines. And that's how you get the speed. You don't yeah. need everybody to be an architect. You don't need everybody to understand the whole thing. Um, but if you know, but you still get a lot of productivity. 
Interesting. What do you think the bottlenecks are in data teams when it comes to uh, transformations and tooling? Um, I would say uh, there's a, there's a few things. I mean, first of all, today you know, just finding a data engineer is hard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <Start there. laughs> by the way if you're looking for data engineers you should hit us up uh, we, we've somehow become a recruiting uh, company now so anyway continue to teach yeah so so that that's definitely a number one issue um and then um i mean once you get into the field i mean we talk about skills in terms of tools and things like that that's that's always there but that's not the biggest issue i think somebody who understands, you know, the business well, and focus on the outcome, again, not getting bogged down into the details, and not able to understand whether these are needed or not, that kind of skill. I think that's rare, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. You know, we're not seeing people, people are like, they're either to jump on something and I want to learn this, but they miss the point that, hey, it's not about learn. I mean, you, you will learn, but you have to actually focus on what you're doing, like what's the outcome and what the business want. You start there and solve that problem or try to solve the problem. And as a result, you will learn uh, as opposed to just, I want to perfect this because I'm going to be an expert in this. It's all about inward looking and that's mm. the problem, you know? Yeah. It seems it's always been the problem too. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I've been in data and probably longer. I mean, I'm sure uh, maybe somebody can't <laughs> chime in on this because he's, he's an OG, but it definitely seems like the business value has been something that's just sort of, like, yeah, I'll, I'll take care of that later. I want to focus on, a, yeah. you know, whatever tool or, you know, whatever technique you're using. So I, I do feel that it's getting closer and closer to being interactive with the business as the market progresses as well, because we're, yeah. we're, we're becoming, we're getting to the point where we have given or we have the opportunity to give access to data to pretty much everybody. It's just a matter of being able to work more closely and more efficiently and more quickly. And the business is starting to expect things in a way. And we're able to accomplish that, you know, from a data engineering perspective, uh, a lot faster, at least a lot more efficiently. And you're starting to see things become a lot more collaborative from a data perspective where you see, citizen data roles in each department, people who mm -hmm. actually understand the business rules that can extend off of the framework or the data architecture that the IT guild has built, and then being able to kind of self-serve themselves into their analytics for their specific use cases, which is really exciting. I, I would say that's the, the best thing that can happen to this market is being able to do these things together and, and collaboratively throughout the enterprise. Yeah, we, we are big fans of data mesh. Yeah. Yeah. You would like the show that we did on Friday, then. <laughs> Shout out to uh, um, Jumak for uh, being on the uh, uh, Friday show as well. That was that was a lot of fun chatting with her. But the lesser known aspects, of, or the less discussed aspects of data mesh, I would say. So that was a lot of fun. But yeah, data mesh is, I think has a lot of potential uh, yeah. to change a lot of things, um, just like microservices did back in the day with uh, software. So. Yeah. Yeah, and it's interesting. I mean, inherently, I assume that data mesh is going to imply less normalization. Hopefully, they're still modeling, but like you're going to have less global normalization across the company. Um, in our chat with Bill Inman, his opinion was that maybe data mesh should coexist with the traditional approach to data, 
So each of these teams kind of owns their data, but you might still have some notion of a data warehouse that is data vault or some other normalization and modeling approach that kind of gathers all the data together. For well, the thing we need is data interop, right? Can we yeah. talk about systems interoperability quite a bit? But I think yep. there is a new, um, maybe some room for um, data model interoperability or something like that. I think that that's, um, data mesh definitely, I think opens the door for that. But I think it's, it seems like, it, as far as my research goes, very unexplored. Because it yeah. just hasn't come up. Everything's been in a silo. So why would you need interop? Um, but right. I think increasingly, you know, data sharing initiatives and data marketplaces are also a, a big step towards this. But I think it's um, we're only at the very beginning of that. So in, Inman just he published a, a good blog piece on the data warehouse in general and how it's been basically a whack-a-mole game. Oh, data warehouse, rest in peace. Is that the one you're talking yeah, about? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I read that. I was like, what the hell? It, it was great. <laughs> <laughs> I read the article. And uh, I felt, I felt, you know, I, I strongly agree with that, with, with what he was saying, which is basically people have tried to kill the data warehouse so many times. We used to hear the data warehouse is dead, but to even have a successful data mesh, the foundational piece would be to have some type of central repository data warehouse that you can extend off of and provide to other users in the businesses or other users in different departments and extend off and build products to those specific teams. Uh, otherwise, it seems like it get really messy really quick. Well, it could. I think it, a lot of yeah. it depends on Conway's law, too. How, how's your org structure to begin with, right? And so yeah. I think for a lot of companies, a, a, you know, a data warehouse is good enough for most cases. It's like, for sure. as we say, most companies are, you know, barely doing BI, let alone AI. Like, it's still the case that <laughs> BI is just, it is what it is. Like, yeah. I think there's a lot of cargo cult BI, um, but it, it, that's not the same as, like, getting, you know, real intelligence out of it. And Kat has a good point here. He says, uh, Agile principles uh, call for daily interactions to the business. Uh, data mesh requires it if you're going to uh, have domain-based data teams, which is absolutely correct. And so, yeah, yeah, it's inter daily interactions like the, the key. If you aren't ain't doing that, it's just you're basically just um, a report mill. So. How do you guys feel? Do you feel that we're getting closer to a more interactive ecosystem and environment? Is analytics progressing in that direction? It's interesting. I mean, we've had a lot of conversations about this. We hope analytics is progressing in that direction. I think some organizations are doing it. I don't know globally how the progress is going. And I would say there are two places actually where you need interaction. So you need analytics to interact with the business, but you also need more interaction between analytics and the app side, which maybe we can dig into more later. We, Joe and I have been thinking about this part quite a bit. Yeah. Um, yeah, I should get to Mark's question here real quick. Yeah. Okay. Because <laughs> it's kind of related. Um, how, how does a company improve the uh, understanding of the business value objective for data engineering and analysts? Does this come down to leadership, making sure that everyone understands the business and its objectives? It's one of a related question. So what do you guys think? Before Satish gets into the technical piece, yeah. I think a really easy question. <laughs> I think a really easy question to ask in these scenarios is what happens if we don't do it? What happens if we don't do this project or this use case? You know, what what how does it affect the business? What's the actual objective? What's what are we trying to accomplish? And mm. by asking what if we don't do this, I think it really quickly will lead into exactly why you're about to do it and get you some type of clear understanding. That's but, my favorite question to ask companies too, is what happens if we just do nothing? Yeah. What's the impact? In a lot of cases, too, it's like, I guess nothing happens. And I'm like, cool. Then I guess we probably shouldn't do anything. <laughs> yeah. Just yeah. save you a bunch of time and money. Here's the bill. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> what are your thoughts, Satish? Yeah, this has been there forever. I mean, mm -hmm. 
it's uh yeah it's it's an organizational like a cultural thing um i i mean i can just take my, my personal approach that i did when i was uh working um you know at a financial firm um I, I was trying to find, I mean, because I was in the central team, I was an IT person, you know, playing like a role as a bridge, you know, between IT and uh, uh, business. My, my thing was to find the right people in the business. But that comes from IT. In this case, he's, uh, we are saying, how does the organization improve that? So what I did was I tried to find partners in business, the right people who are you know, technical enough, but they know uh, and, and excited about doing something for the organization, you know, and they are excited to learn the technology, but they're not experts, but they know the business and they have something in it for them. And those partnerships, when I, when I created those partnerships with the right people, I had tremendous amount of success. Now, as an organization, they have to find out who those partners are going to be on the technical side and on the business side and then pair them up and say hey these are the partners these are the these are the people who should drive this and i think that's what i would do because i was the person on the other side on the technology side and there was another a few people on the business side where i partnered and had great success and i would i would say that should be the focus how you create those because at the end of the day it's about people that's what it is and no matter how many tools you do how much training you provide, if it is not within them to solve this, it is impossible. You, you say too, right? That as you go through all these, as you go through all these different processes, it's it's not always super clear what the project will actually lead to from a value perspective, and and that's one of the great things about data is that as you drive some insight out of it, you know, one question leads to an answer that leads to five more questions and you see data evolve into uh, almost this domino effect where you actually are able to get value out of the data in ways that you didn't think were imaginable prior. And so I think just finding an initial use case that almost might be low hanging fruit or a very obvious one or a very clear one will naturally lead into a snowball effect of different types of projects and different, different success for the business. And also by interacting with the business too and understanding who the stakeholders are and developing a rapport with them and relationship. I think that means you're going to be successful too because you're, you know, their yeah. outcomes are, what they need. Um, awesome. Maybe you'll become friends with them too and that goes a long way. I think social capital can't be understated enough. I think that's like the one thing that's totally underrated and it always has been in technology and data is just being able to um, be effective, um, you know, socially and, and yeah. politically to, to be crass, yeah. but it's true. So, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, being able to bridge that gap is so key. You know, one of the big reasons why we took the approach we did was so we could fit both audiences, you know, within the organization, the power user on the business side, plus the most techie data architect that the business has, because everybody should be collaborating at the end of the day. They should be working in you know, a similar type of framework. So that way you're all unified. Yeah, not reinventing the wheel either, right? It's like yeah. when, I, when I saw what you guys had, I was like, this is cool because I don't have to, you know, rewrite a, a slowly change a dimension for the 50,000th time. You know, yeah. it's like, it's just sort of there and yeah. that's how it should be, right? So you yeah. have something to say, Matt? 
Oh, I was just going to throw in as well. I mean, what about this problem of customer-facing analytics? I think traditionally what's happened in the data warehousing space is that the data warehouse team tends to serve the business. And so there's there's less focus on going back toward the application and saying, hey, why don't we embed some of this data right into the application and point it to customers as well? I mean, how can teams do a better job of kind of facing in both directions, both being integrated with the app and serving the business well? Are we talking about reverse ETL? Uh, not necessarily. Well, more like if I want a, so I have dashboards for my business, but what about if I'm building a SaaS platform and I also want to have dashboards that my customers can directly see? Yeah, sort of embedded system. analytics maybe is what yeah, it's called. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. So. Yeah, I, I had that need when I was working on yeah. uh, embedded analytics was like the biggest thing because we were building customer facing uh, applications and we wanted to embed, embed the right, you know, charts or whatever analytics uh, into the app, into the web, web portal. This is for external customers. Um, I mean, I the challenge that I had with that was purely technical. Like it, at that time, the technical solution was not there, easily available. Things have come a long way now, like with you know, Power BI and, you know, Click and Tableau, they, they support those embedded analytics today pretty easily. But back then it was very hard to do that. I was looking at open source solutions uh, to do something like that. Uh, so so my experience was mainly uh, technical challenges. Um, other than that, I, I think, you know, once you have a centralized place where you have curated data and analytics, I mean, it's just, then it becomes just a technology thing, how you distribute that and how you kind of integrate that with other, whether it's a SaaS application or some other application, it doesn't matter that much. Once you do that whole easy thing of the centralized repository, <laughs> that's perfectly governed. You know, once you just get past that part, then, then it's all, it's all down there. It's like a cooking show. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Where do, you, where do you see the data space going over the next few years? This is a question we like to ask all of our guests. Uh, always um, endlessly uh, curious on this one. <laughs> Let's teach go first. Yeah, I mean, um, I, I would say, you know, one of the things, you know, as you put correctly, which is, you know, BI, we still, a lot of companies are doing BI, let alone AI. So there's a lot of room there uh, to catch up, I guess, for a lot of organizations. Um, you know, real time is one big thing that you know people have been saying for a long time, but I don't think everybody's doing it. Um, there's a lot of companies are not still not there. They're still trying to find use cases. You know, do we even have a use case? You know, uh, for that. So real time is one area. Um, flexible models, you know, kind of resilient models is another one. Like data vault isn't a good example, right? I mean. Um, that's another area. Now, decentralization, um, the data mesh, that's another area. But yeah, those, those are the few areas that I'm, I'm thinking. Um, you know, transformations definitely is going to play a huge, huge role in this, all of this data transformations, right? I mean, you know, whether you're getting unstructured data, structured data, whatever you're doing, you have to clean the data, you have to curate the data, you have to transform the data. 
I kind of felt like, so Satish and I, when we started Coalesce, we were in stealth mode for quite some time, you know, over at least over a year, almost a year and a half. And while we were in stealth, you know, we weren't interacting with a ton of companies, just out of the nature of being stealth. And coming out of it, you know, I, I think it was very surprising to find that as we talked to all these large enterprises and these organizations that had even been on Snowflake for years, still the vast majority of their workloads living on premise and living yeah. on their old enterprise relational database on premise. And I think, I think that that whole movement still has yet to happen, actually shifting off the EDW that's, you know, living in Exadata or Teradata. There's certainly been some great examples of this uh, executed well uh, by Snowflake, but I think the market opportunity and like the, the migrations, the great migrations have really yet to happen. And that's going to be a really imminent piece that we're seeing firsthand where companies say use Snowflake for a department specific use case, love it. And now we're trying to think and try to figure out how to digest that EDW migration or, or whatever the mm. use case would be for these massive workloads on premise. And, and I would think that some of these ambitious things, uh, you know, in the future that we're talking about, that this will probably be or, or required to be done first before being able to successfully execute on some of these other, you know, ambitious hot topics that we discussed. For sure. Like I think your biggest competition isn't um, maybe DBT or any of these other tools. It's SSIS. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's Control true. M and yeah, mm -hmm. I mean. <laughs> What what are the big challenges if a company is trying to migrate from an on-prem system to just say, let's move everything to Snowflake? What's going to be their number one challenge in trying to undertake that process? I think it's a tough pill to swallow, first and foremost. Mm -hmm. It's viewed in a way as a sunk cost, potentially, from the business perspective, where it's, it's oh, geez, we're going to have to shift this off, and that's going to take us years to do. Is it really, like, do we really have to do that right now? Or can we do some other stuff in the meantime? And, People and in teams, they will also procrastinate doing so. So I think the speed at which people can migrate is so important. And being able to unlock productivity gains for migrations is so key. And it's been one of the sectors that we've seen Coalesce be very successful in is just migrations in general, whether it's uh, off of SSIS or some other traditional ETL tool. Uh, depending on the platform, right? Whether it's SQL Server, Teradata, Exadata, whatever it may be, but uh, you know, having to go through, understand what was built, and then decide if you want to redesign or re-architect—that's a whole nother question. From migrating, is it just a lift and shift? You hardly ever want to do that because what was probably built on premise isn't what you want in the cloud. So you're going to have to start going through this entire re-architecture, uh, design review on what you want to build next. That takes a lot of time and then actually going to build it, you know, of course, traditionally has been very time consuming, expensive effort. And, and learning the new platform now, because yeah. now you have to do that and make it optimized for, for that. Well, yeah, the paradox is if you don't migrate, you're just embedding yourself more in these workloads that are probably very complicated. And so it, it actually increases the risk that you'll never leave precisely because yeah. it's complicated. Of course. So we see, yeah, yeah, we it, see this it, often. It does take that strong leadership, right? To kind of put the foot down and say, hey, we're doing this. We're, 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 we're going off because like you said, the more, the longer that goes on, the more entrenched you are uh, 
on premise. So yeah, scary. It does get better with time. It does not get better with time. It's like a yeah, like a like a, like a smelly dumpster or something. It's not like it gets wheezing yeah. over time. So not saying people's data stacks are just like that, but um, sometimes they some are. some sometimes are actually yeah, and that's true. Clear. Yeah, um, yeah. Like dumpsters that are on fire and um, and also smelly. Yeah. Tell me more, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> we have lots of data trauma here. Lots of data trauma. I, I do, I do, I do feel that we're seeing a lot of movement, though. A lot of organizations yeah. that are desired, like they do now, desire to shift off their on-premise workloads yeah. to the cloud. Whereas, you know, we, we were working with Snowflake probably before there were 100 employees in our in our past yeah. lives as well, and. And, you know, that company's had amazing growth. We love Snowflake. It's the only platform we support for that reason. And now we're seeing organizations really, really start to think, how do we, how do we actually shift our entire on-premise workloads, which is, which is great. You know, I think it's, it's perfect timing, platform super mature, support all these enterprise scale use cases. Uh, but, but it does feel like we're just at the cusp of it, really, we're at the tip of the iceberg. It, it, it has not been a large focus from the fortune 500 or fortune 1000 um, until recently, I would say. Yeah. And it's hard because um, it kind of goes against the traditional value system of cloud platforms because it's not, you can't be fully agile. In other words, you're talking more of a moonshot. Like you have to, you have to commit and you have to spend a bunch of money and resources and just get it done. So you can shut down the old system. It's not like you can gradually migrate over 10 years. It doesn't really work that way to have two centers of gravity like that at the same time. I oh, know we, one of our clients, I mean, we were meeting with the CIO the other day and he said, yeah, a migration that was supposed to take a couple of years. Their investor said, look, you need to get this done by the end of the year. So you got, let's see, eight months. So hey, let's get this done. Us. Joe, are you <laughs> we're talking like every everything has to be out of the data center and into yeah. the cloud. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, everything, and this is, yeah. Um, yeah. But you know what? Deadlines work. I mean, no better way to get something done than um, you know, knowing you got to get it done by. I do this with my kids all the time. Yeah, that's what makes diamonds. Let's go. <laughs> Talk about uh, streaming, uh, Satish. What's your thoughts on data modeling with streams? Uh, data modeling with streams. Um, mm -hmm. So one of the things like, for example, um, data vault uh, is because it's ingestion only kind of, it's a nice model that fits that pattern because you, you know, you're getting the data, you're not doing any updates uh, and the stream data can be just ingested uh, in, into that. So it, it's a nice fit there, right there. Uh, for, for for that, um, as far as the streaming data itself goes, um, you know, first of all, you, you can't transform the data much. And, you know, you have these stream stream sets kind of tools that will let you do some ETL on the streaming data, um, but mostly the way that I see stream data is is mostly like a fact table data, hmm. right? So it's mostly ingestion. It's like a transaction that you're going to analyze in the context of other information, uh, such as your dimensional data. So the way that I see it is stream data usually lands in a fact table and everything else is like just, you know, you're, you're, you're analyzing it around um, in the context of the other dimensions which are built either a star schema or whatever methodology that you adopt. Interesting. Yeah. 
yeah, we ask this a lot of people. We don't, I don't think Matt or I have an opinion yet either, but it's, um, it's something we've been in our minds lately. Because again, like there haven't been any real um, transformations in the transformation space for a long time, uh, no pun intended, but it's no, no big ideas. Um, but with the world moving towards streaming, we're kind of like, okay, so like when are we going to see, you know, sort of the next uh, evolution of, of data modeling, but on streams and don't know yet. Don't know what that looks like. Yeah, people. Some people will tell you don't, don't, don't even bother doing it. Just assume the data contract with the uh, upstream source is correct and land your data and do your thing. And I think that's, um, yeah, that's sort of the default answer right now. Yeah, and it implies a lot of assumptions. It implies there even is a data contract with upstream. And I think anyone who's worked with that kind of source data coming from an application knows that often it changes without notice unless you have a really good communication pattern with the data provider. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. So yeah, it yeah. may not fit anywhere. Like yeah, you guys are you guys seeing streaming use cases pop up more and more? More or, and more. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I Especially like for like fast analytics. So I think there's yeah. two two aspects to this. One is like using streams, and then two is low latency ingest and low latency queries as a result for like embedded analytics, especially and yeah. other types of use cases like that. But yeah, we're seeing a lot more of that. That's cool. I mean, yeah. we're definitely seeing the. You know, closer and closer, closer and closer to real time, like the change data capture, CDC, mm -hmm. streams and tasks, use cases are growing a lot. Um, but like full streaming, I feel like, I feel like it's still a little bit, a little bit of ways to get exactly there versus what I would say is still pretty damn close, you know? Yeah, I think the tooling is getting better, right? It's companies like yeah. Maroxa, for example, and I think others are kind of on the cutting edge of making the tooling for um, streaming pipelines yeah. just a lot simpler. I mean, because back in the day, I mean, you got to set up your own Kafka or Flink processing or Beam or whatever. And it's just, um, you know, and cloud providers do provide this now, but it's still like, you got to know what you're doing. You really have to know what you're doing with this stuff. It's not just kind of, I don't know. These are very powerful tools. Right. So, but very, like historically were difficult to set up and support. Yeah, even stuff like Kinesis, like that's managed pretty much, but it's like you still got to know what you're doing with it, like unless you want to spend a lot of money accidentally. So, <laughs> and it's still for the time being the glue parts, just connecting together the different streams and building out more complex mm. flows. That part is still hard, even though you have these managed services. Yeah, and I know various platforms are trying to solve this problem, but it, it seems like it's still early days in terms of having something that's more unified where you don't have to think about, hey, how data is moving and it becomes more like a data warehouse where you can just think about querying and transformations just inside that system. Yep, yep. I do like what you said, Joe. I mean, for specific use cases, you know, like fast analytics, of course, it makes yeah. sense. I see yeah. a world in which they'll coexist, streaming use cases and historical data you know, data warehousing. And yeah, in my perfect world, I mean, I would just have everything real time, right? Like, why, why do you need to wait? But then I guess it's also the question, like, what are you going to do with that if you get it? Like, what, what action are you going to take? Like, exactly. does it help you do smart things more quickly or, or make you do dumb things more quickly? So right. like, could, you don't want the latter, like doing dumb things very quickly is not ideal, so. And, and expensively as well. Mm -hmm. Yep, yeah. Unless you learn from that. Like, you know. <laughs> <laughs> from, the, from those historical you're asking for a lot to teach come on <laughs> very optimistic yeah, yeah. No, it's, no that's a good point though you do need to learn from it but yeah it's it's an interesting one I mean, and we're seeing i think we're at an inflection point with the industry right definitely. now where yeah it just it, it, i don't know it feels like there's definitely a sea change new types of databases coming out 
um you know, like your, your firebolts or rock sets of the world imply and so forth i mean it's just it, a lot of these have been around for a while actually but it feels like they're now getting the adoption for certain use cases and again like snowflake ain't stupid they're they're working on exactly this stuff i'm sure so it's yep. like you know they can rest and say oh everything must be batch it's like nobody nobody in the right mind's gonna you know stick with that um edict you know in a world where i think the expectations are just moving more towards real time so yeah but it's a ball. The analytic space feels like it moves so fast, and then at times, then it also feels like it moves so slow at other times. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it's 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 funny. Like this book here, you know, if you read the DevOps Handbook, this came out what in like two thousand. Uh, what was it? Two thousand. Well, this is sixteen, but I think DevOps itself came out a long, long time ago. You know, um, like in the two thousands, but it was. Um, it's funny because you read a book like this and you basically just replace the word dev with data and you pretty much have like all the companies that are in existence right now and observability, for example, or reliability or any of the uh, uh, stuff. So I think that you can just take inspiration from software engineering and basically um, whatever software engineering has been doing, it's, you're probably going to see something like that in the data world. So I think that's the litmus test Matt and I use is, okay, so like what hasn't been appropriated yet from software? Okay, then that probably will be at some point. Or some sort, some variant of that. Obviously, data and software are not exactly like the same thing, but close. Yeah. So, yeah. I, I would bet we'll see uh, an extreme approach of that as well, where they go where we go too far on the information mm. side of software engineering. <laughs> uh, we're not already seeing that, but but there is like, going to be another balance of moderation on what we take, what lessons we do take from those best practices, and how we find that you know, data ops applied in a really, really strong way, really successful way. That's such a great point. Cool. Um, so we're at time right now. Uh, thanks for being on the show. Love talking to you guys. Um, for okay. people who want to learn more about what you're up to, how can they do that? Yeah, just go check out our website, coalesce.io. See, uh, we got a customer spotlight coming up next month. Thanks. Uh, you know, very, very efficient, you know, from nothing, built from scratch, EDW into production very quickly. Uh, you can always reach out to either of us, you know, request a demo, kick off a free trial, but we'd love to answer any questions. We're always here for everybody. So, yeah, that's cool. Thanks, gentlemen. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank um, you. Great yeah. having you guys here. Thanks, and uh, just for the audience, um, we're going to be skipping uh, the Friday show this Friday and uh, the next Monday is Monday morning data chat. So um, you get a break without us. Uh, so um, Congratulations. Uh, I'm gonna, <laughs> actually going to be visiting my grandmother in Omaha uh, this week. So, um, and Matt and I, yeah, we just kind of need a break. We've been doing shows for, jeez, uh, we do two shows a week now, which is kind of crazy. So yeah. um, it's like a job on top of a job, but it's a lot of fun. You know, I think what we like about this, we get to talk to, you know, highly smart people like yourselves. And this is just, you know, and the great audience uh, questions and so forth. So it's, it's, it's awesome. But yeah, so and then we'll be back on the 9th. Um, we have uh, Arjun from Materialize on to talk about um, Materialize and what it does and uh, kind of these next-gen databases, I think, like Fast Analytics again, which is, I think, really cool. So um, and again, we're Ternary Data. Uh, if you want data architecture, data engineering consulting, uh, hit us up at ternarydata.com. And uh, yeah, we'll see you all on the 9th. So cool. all right. see you guys. Thanks to the audience for the questions, Thank too. You. Thanks, everybody. Thanks. Thanks. Take care.